In this edition of AML Conversations, AML Right Source Vice Chairman John Byrne sat down with the founder of the Antiquities Coalition. The Antiquities Coalition is a nonprofit organization created roughly four years ago to stop the use of stolen antiquities as terrorist financing tools for extremist organizations, a very compelling part of anti terrorist financing. The Antiquities Coalition conducts excellent advocacy and awareness work dealing with the need for countries around the world to create relevant laws and regulations to address stolen antiquities and their use as a tool to commit horrific crimes. So, Deborah, I appreciate the time today.、Um, I've only recently become aware of this very fascinating issue. I, I generally knew about it before the meeting you invited me to a few weeks ago. But I think it would be useful for the AML community to hear、uh, from the founder of the Antiquities Coalition what's the,、uh, what's the issue?、Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the connection to the AML、um, infrastructure. And then I'll ask you a little bit about how this got started. And maybe we can give them some takeaways on what this community can do to help your cause going forward.、Mm-hmm. Great. Well, certainly there has been、uh, treasure hunters ever since there's been buried treasure. But it has been in recent years with the rise of the internet, with the ability to communicate globally, to move objects quickly, and with the, the increased distribution patterns of organized crime and the rise of terrorism combined with the breakdown in civil society in places like the Middle East, that we have seen antiquities. Trafficking rising on an industrial scale. So,、um, let, let me understand this. The, the only thing, I, the only frame of reference I had before this in terms of art、um, being important to society was the、uh, motion picture Monuments Men、mm-hmm. from a couple years ago, which was、That's、interesting.、Right. I had no idea that, that that even existed. So, that was a, a situation where obviously. Art was、uh, stolen by the Nazis, right?、Mm-hmm. So, this is sort of the same theme, but as you, as you point out, it's used for organi- fund organized crime. It can be used, obviously, for terrorism, which is、mm-hmm. near and dear to our community, as is organized crime to some degree. But also, it's just a, a profit making motive. And I guess the confusion, not the confusion, but maybe the question people have is oh, is this only a Middle Eastern issue? And I think you. Say that's clearly not the case. It, it's clearly not the case. It's a global issue. We see an increase in trafficking and looting and trafficking going on in China. The Chinese have arrested a large number of people because it is, as you say, it's highly profitable. We've seen in the case of the Middle East and Northern Africa, it's used by groups like ISIS to intimidate local populations in terms of targeting the destruction. But also, if you're targeting Palmyra at the same time that you're looting it, anything that you've looted from Palmyra goes up in value. ISIS is, has been actually quite strategic in what they have been doing with this. And then they're trafficking these into international communities. We found even direct links in France that the sale of antiquities has financed some of the terrorism that is going on in Europe. So, I don't want to get too far ahead, but that just leads me to the broad question I know we'll talk about, and that is okay, so they steal the art, they steal the antiques,、mm-hmm. and they give it to, a, to somebody to buy and sell. No vetting goes on? Like how, how, give me an example of somebody that's working for ISIS、mm-hmm. takes whatever. And I know from,、right. from, again, the meeting that you invited me to last week that there's. Hundreds of thousands of pieces out there. But, so they take something of, of clear value,、mm-hmm. 
How does that work? So do, how do they get it to somebody or some auction house or whatever in France? Walk me through that. Okay. Well, it's not that complicated. First, on the distribution networks, they exist, and as probably many of your listeners know, across a broad range of issues. If you're distributing, say, fake CDs one day, you can be distributing humans the next and distributing looted antiquities later. The key is then it gets broken down into specialized areas. For coming out of Syria and Iraq, we saw a lot of it going to Turkey. For coming out of Egypt after the crisis, the, the revolution there, we saw it going through Israel. In fact, when really? the Israelis clamped down on what was coming through the tunnels, they actually seized a large number of looted antiquities coming from Egypt. Turkey, we have not seen the same level of cooperation with the crackdown there, and it has been actually funding a lot of terrorism, coming in, easily coming through Turkey into Germany, into France, into those networks, and then it can come to the United States. So um, so the, the profit motive is clear, to move criminal activity is clear. Mm-hmm. Um, are some simply stealing those items? Like what, what I remember reading about is that ISIS and others the Taliban, they just wanted to destroy artifacts. Mm-hmm. So is that something that you look at as well, or you just, not, I don't mean, are you just concerned, but is your main focus on the trafficking, or is there a part of your organization that looks at, is there any way to prevent just the mere destruction of these incredibly valuable artifacts? Absolutely, we yeah. look at that. Okay. Um, and we see what's called cultural cleansing, which is the targeted destruction of primarily sites is what they're looking at. It's a precursor for genocide, and so it's very important to be looking at that because that that really is an indicator of larger problems to come. And we have worked very closely with uh, governments around the world, but primarily in the Middle East, since that's where the real crisis is going on, in identifying how to better protect the sites and then to protect the antiquities. But going back to your point on ISIS again, ISIS and these other violent extremist organizations, in some instances, they would target specific things to be destroyed if it was meaningful to that community. And they would, by and large, most of what they destroyed were actually other Islamic sites or Muslim sites. They weren't um, Christian sites necessarily, as is common believed. It really was much more that they were targeting different aspects of their own religion. But mostly the items that were in them were looted and trafficked. The bigger concern has been, and this again was very interesting in terms of what ISIS was doing, and we have actual documentation from raids that special forces did, ISIS set up a ministry of extraction, and in it it had two parts. One was oil and one was for antiquities. In the Middle East, antiquities, there are believed to be hundreds of thousands of sites, so it's almost an endless resource. And so they were encouraging illicit digging. So by and large, we don't know what was discovered. We're only finding, as things start to come into the market in the West or in in Asia, where a lot of these items are in demand, we're only starting to see now what they might have looted. Wow. Um, So let's talk about the organization. You founded Mm -hmm. this organization. How long has it been uh, in existence? What was um, the nexus between... Clearly, your interest and others' interest in dealing with this issue and putting an organization together. And tell tell our audience a bit about how it works. Sure. We were um, inspired by the group of Egyptians who protected the Egyptian museum during the revolution in 2011. 
and we had founded actually a uh, archaeological institute at George Washington University and the Minister of Antiquities at the time, Zai Hawass, who was known for what he does in National Geographic and has made a lot of the great discoveries in Egypt, came and launched it for us. And after the revolution, we started hearing reports of mass looting across Egypt at some of the main archaeological sites, just outside the pyramids, mm -hmm. down in Luxor, although Luxor was better protected because um, of the local communities chipping in to help. And so as, as we put together, my background is working in the U.S. government, and we put together a group, actually, we had some people who focused on money laundering and law enforcement and diplomats and others to put together a white paper. And we sent it off to the Egyptian government, who invited us to come meet with them, and we negotiated a public-private partnership to work with the Egyptian government on protecting their antiquities. Out of that, though, we realized pretty quickly that the benefits that you get and an academic institution are superb with access to thought leaders, but if you really want to do things, it's better to have your own organization. And out of that, we created the Antiquities Coalition. So that was back in 2011, 2012? That was back four years ago. Four years ago. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So um, I'm assuming besides doing uh, programming, you do a bit of advocacy as well? I mean, obviously, I know you, mm -hmm. you sent a letter. We'll talk about legislation in, in a little bit. So it's both advocacy. So give us a sense of not just the staff, but the member, the membership. How does one become a member of this coalition, and what, what does it look like? So uh, we work with other organizations who are focused in our field across a broad range of issues. We cooperate with entities like the Middle East Institute to provide platforms, with the Asia Society, with a group called the Global Hope Initiative, which was founded by Irina Bakova, who just stepped down as the head of UNESCO, and then obviously with other archaeological organizations. But we, we like to have a diverse platform because the first issue that we were tackling was raising awareness, and not just with the buying community, but really with the political leadership. The antiquities ministries in most countries tend to be the weakest within the system. And in the United States, we don't even have a culture ministry. Right. It's across the diverse aspects of government. Right. So if we were going to see any kind of action, we had to get the attention of the equivalents of the ministers of state and the ministers of defense. So that is where we started by raising awareness within that community. Once we could get the political will, where we started to see legislation coming out of Capitol Hill, in this case related to Syria and stopping the import of Syrian antiquities, we started to see and work with the United Nations. We got resolutions through, again, to focus on getting commitments from member states to stop and take all measures necessary to stop the import of illicit antiquities. We could start working with individual governments then to put in place the aspects to take advantage of international law to stop the trade. Then we started working through the different various aspects of the communities, capacity building with law enforcement, working on the Hill for plugging some of the holes, and we have been trying to tackle working with the art community, with the auction houses, with some of the dealers, with some of the museums to make sure that there are consistent standards across the art community as well. You know, that's real interesting. My, my, my background, again, in AML, I'm very familiar, as I'm sure you are, with the Financial Action Task Force, FATF. Yes. Has FATF done? Uh, it seems to me that there's, they've touched on this issue. I seem to recall they do so many reports. But have they mentioned this in any of their either recommendations or their typologies? You know, it's, it's been very interesting working with different aspects of the government. Uh, it took a long time for antiquities to be included in the considerations of OFAC and, and other entities like that. 
in part just because of bureaucratic issues with the U.S. government. The point person on this issue is the Assistant Secretary for Culture and Diplomatic Affairs at the State Department. Okay. And while certainly that's a really important position, they don't tend to have much interaction with law enforcement and with Treasury. And so naturally it would be much more logical to have the person who's the point person and focused on this issue at um, the NSC. So they could be coordinating across all of the government. That said, when the legislation was passed to on Syria, they did create a reporting requirement by state and the creation of a task force. And uh, Foreign Affairs has been very good about making sure that state is convening that task force and trying to get various aspects and, and members of the committee of the community within the government to attend those meetings. I, you know, I was thinking, like I said, with the uh, the international group that I mentioned, uh, the financial task force. They, um, the U.S. is a member. Actually, they're going to be the, the U.S. is going to be the president this year, so that's that's useful. But it sounds like what you're looking for is similar to what FATF attempts to do in, in AML. So yeah. what they attempt to do is they make sure that um, the governing bodies support. Uh, series of, I wouldn't call them best practices, but standards in each country regarding how the criminal laws look, how the money laundering laws look, that sort right. of thing. So if they have gaps, as, as you see here, in other countries mm-hmm. to um, encourage, quote, compliance, what they do with FATF is they do these mutual evaluations. Mm-hmm. So you have a group of experts from all sorts of countries come to the U.S. for three or four months and say what their laws and regulations look like, come to Canada, whatever. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that would be useful. It sounds like you're doing some of that already, Not maybe not the evaluation part, but making through the UN and other vehicles an assessment of countries that A, awareness, B, what do your laws look like, and C, are they enforceable? Because right. you can have laws, and, and nobody does anything with them, as we know. But are they enforceable? Do they work? Are they effective? Right. Mm-hmm. So um, as you're telling me all this, I'm looking at the possibility that some countries need to be um, encouraged because perhaps antiquities isn't a big part of their culture. If that left, so, so maybe that's part of the not maybe part of the gap here is mm-hmm. you know you talk about Egypt, you talk about you know um, Italy and Great Britain. Of course, those countries right. have been around for ages, and that becomes important to them. And so that must be one of your struggles talking to a country which perhaps is trafficked. Maybe the trafficked items are going to that country. But that country has no sense of how important this is to cultural heritage and everything else. So that must be part of this. You're absolutely right. And it's no irony that those three countries that you mentioned, Egypt, France, and Italy, really are taking a leadership role on this issue globally. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly, we've gotten the political will, but it hasn't always translated into action. So, for example, when Jack Lew was Treasury Secretary, Mm -hmm. he held the first meeting of finance ministers of the um, UN. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, and, and antiquity was on the agenda, but it hasn't really translated into any specific action. Right. So that's the kind of the Security Council. So it was the, the smaller group, not the General Assembly, but it hasn't translated into action. We've seen the OECD make a commitment to this. Various of these bodies, but they haven't defined what they expect the member states to do, and that's where we see a real breakdown. So, for example, in the UK, we've seen a movement towards addressing the money laundering issue. In Italy, the Carabinieri has 
a rapid deployment force in an antiquities police that are very active at home, but also working with their counterparts in government and you know across the Middle East and in some of these other countries that are facing crisis. But there isn't any kind of consistent right. activity or any entity that is focused on this in a really meaningful way. So going back to the event that I attended, you had a um, Italian general, and I'll let you describe his role and everything, mm-hmm. who talked about what they do and originally when I was listening, I thought, well, this is going to be sort of just referencing what happens in Italy, but clearly not the case. It was a broad-based approach dealing mm-hmm. in places like Kosovo and other places like that. Talk about that, because to me, that was both an example of mm-hmm. a government that, quote, gets it, but also devoted resources, law enforcement, and working with the private sector, and they're working in trying to assist other other mm-hmm. countries. But I thought that was a, it was great that you guys put that out because it's a good example of why this is important mm-hmm. and a good example of effectiveness. Well, yeah. General Perulli's job actually shows what an issue this is. Mm-hmm. The fact that they have a task force or, or a division within the Carabinieri that is dedicated just to antiquities crime is a very significant issue and a validation, I think, of what the challenges and, and the, the, the depth of the problem. He has a database, which I thought was very telling, which you can, can download on your phone through an iPhone app. And it has over a million items listed that have been stolen. And you can upload those, you can compare, but that really shows the scope of the problem. And his mandate originally was just to be focused on Italian antiquities. But with this growing global crime, they've been leading an international task force which just conducted raids in four countries mm-hmm. across a broad range of antiquities, including in Egyptian antiquities that were seized and repatriated. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that um, they started out with one mission and then it expanded proves mm-hmm. your Proves your point about the global the global nature of this. I mean, the global think, nature, and yeah. the other thing that Italy did, which actually was really special, which has become part of his job, is they pushed for what they call blue helmets of culture, so that there's a division in the UN peacekeeping force that is dedicated to culture, and it's a large part is the Carabinieri that's filling that role. So let's let's talk about some practical aspects of this for the community mm-hmm. that I come from. So the uh, AML professional in 2018 um, is responsible for reporting, detecting, and preventing suspicious activity. Not being experts in elder abuse or human trafficking or antiques trafficking, Mm -hmm. but having a sense that transactional activity that is inconsistent with the customer, whether it be an entity or an Mm -hmm. individual, is something that law enforcement needs to be aware of. So a couple things that I think about when I think about this is sort of adding to uh, adding to the growing, growing, ever-growing list of things to be aware of. Um, in the states, since we mentioned it up front, the FBI has its own unit on mm-hmm. uh, on dealing with art theft. So that was something I was unaware of. If a bank um, uh, a bank onboarding uh, customer relation compliance type is dealing with a brand new entity mm-hmm. or, or customer, what sort of, because you talked about some of this last week, what sort of transactions 
would you folks think are um, inconsistent with normal art buying and selling that could mean that it needs another review by somebody in law enforcement? That's really an excellent question, and we fully understand that investment in art and antiquities is a good investment, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's growing. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Financial Times did a really interesting piece recently focused on this and how the art market grew during the financial crisis because people felt that that was where they could could obviously get some returns, and that hasn't changed. But there are a few criteria that are really important to keep in mind, and they're not that complicated. You don't have to be an expert. One is there's a 1970s convention that was passed in UNESCO that basically drew the red line that if you bought something that that has a provenance before 1970, you didn't really need to know and have an export license. If you bought it post-1970, you better have documentation. And they should be aware and be able to provide that. A simple Google search of that documentation also can help. There are so many, even with major museums and other auction houses, where when we were able to get hold of the records and we did a Google search, you could find that the address didn't exist. That should not be happening by any major art organization or institution. They should be looking at the provenance and know. And if, if there's nothing that's verifiable in the provenance, if there's no previous photos of it, if it was somebody saying, as we've seen in a lot of these seizures, that they inherited this from their great uncle on his grand tour when he was a lord in the UK, or as we've seen kind of in the Middle East, the Pashas who had, had gotten this out of Turkey. You know, there are only so many of the things that they got that way and, and can't. So those are things just to look into further. You know, it's interesting. Um, and let, let's, we'll talk about the legislation. The, when I think of these things from an AML perspective, I think, okay, as the compliance professional, I can only know so much. Right. So I'm only dealing, if I have um, a museum or an art dealer as a client, they're going to come in and tell me generally how their business works. I'm going to make decisions on the risk level based on um, checking out how long they've been in business and the, 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 the volume they plan to do, what sort of um, credit rate, ratings they are. Look at all that sort of thing. And I'll have a general sense when money start coming in that it's consistent with what they said they were. Again, I'm no expert mm-hmm. in museums or art houses, but you'd have some sense, this is what the expected activity would be. I'd have a conversation with you, and you'd say, I expect once a month, based on sales uh, or purchases, that I'm going to be depositing $500,000, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then over time, you look at that, and if the numbers go way high or way low, you potentially go back to the client and say, this here it doesn't seem that that's going to be that simple for the banker to Mm -hmm. do. So that leads me to... The obvious, and that is, uh, what obligations do art dealers, museums, and those that purchase mm-hmm. artifacts have? Well, let's just start with the states. What obligations do they have in the states? So if I want to sell you, I said, hey, I, I got something. Mm-hmm. And it came from, my family's from Ireland, and this is my great-grandfather's whatever. And I want... Tell me what it's worth, and you know we'll mm-hmm. we'll do a deal sort of thing. 
how does that work? Because uh, in the states, like right now, what what are the obligations that if I'm going to donate it, what does the museum have to do? If I want right. you to buy it, what does the art dealer have to do? Virtually nothing. Okay. You don't even have to disclose who the seller is, mm-hmm. and so you could be buying a multi-million-dollar antiquity or painting without ever knowing who you're buying it from. You there are minimal requirements on provenance. That really is left up to either the auction house to certify it, not even certify, just to have conducted it, that they feel Mm -hmm. it was that their obligations were met in order to be able to auction it off, or increasingly we see a lot of this done through private sales. And then for the, the purchaser, again, it doesn't have to be disclosed who the purchaser is. And they have no reporting requirements. And so it's in, in dealing in this kind of money, and particularly if you're dealing with some of the auction houses who are acting as bankers as well, it's totally unregulated. And you mentioned before the database that the Italian general has put together has a million pieces that have been stolen. I'm assuming that's, right. that's a drop in the ocean, right? There's been a lot more than that. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's just what they know of. Yeah, so exactly. that's what I mean. So it's significantly yeah. more. I mean, here we have no kind of database like that. There is an art registry for certain kinds of art that you is run, I think it's out of the UK, that you can check with them to see if something was on a stolen list. Interpol keeps some what they call red lists, and so types of things that are known to have been looted out of, say, Libya or Egypt, they can report a requirement, but you have to have had an inventory to do that. Most of these countries don't have any kind of inventory, and certainly for anything that has been recently looted, dug up out of the ground, there's obviously no record. So it's a very risky business, particularly for compliance officials. Yeah, sure, yeah, and I would imagine, like I said, most bankers listening to this are just going, I'm sympathetic, not sure what I can do other than do a better job of talking to the clients and trying to understand that. That, So that leads us to, I I forget the bill number, you can tell me, but there's a there's a bill, uh, well, actually, at the close of this, I'll, I'll put the bill information uh, out for the members so they'll be able to check it out. But there's a bill in the House, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a corollary in the Senate yet, that would require uh, art dealers and auction houses and those in those categories to be part of the Bank Secrecy Act. That's right, right. Yeah. yes. And that is, um, that was the result of what? Meaning, I know obviously members heard from your organization mm-hmm. and others, but was this over the course of a couple of years? Has this been just in the past, This just in this Congress where it resonated with this particular member to introduce this? And it was co-sponsors on the bill. Again, mm-hmm. we'll make all that information available. So what, what started the approach here? Because I, again, I have to admit, somebody who knows the Bank Secrecy Act really well, I can't tell you now how many groups mm-hmm. are included. Uh, I wouldn't have assumed that art dealers and auction houses were in it. I do believe they should be, obviously. But right. um, what started your push to get, at least get legislation drafted, which is a pretty pretty good success? It's you know it's not there yet, but that's right. that's part of awareness. Well, we're we're very excited, and in fact, the it's been discussed on and off over the years, uh, but it's never been successful. Right. And the committee actually is the one who had self-initiated this. They had, there have been several hearings about the illicit trade, and I think there's growing awareness on the Hill and the importance of dealing with this. And the U.S. has the largest art market in the world, and as they've delved more into how the art market functions, mm-hmm. they've realized that this is a gap. And as they've got collected more information, you know, from organizations like us who have briefed them, but from other 
broader groups than ours, they've realized that this really is an issue and it, it's something that needs to be addressed. Interesting. So the largest market is here. The largest art market in the world is the United States. Interesting. So obviously there's a lot of stolen art in this market. There is a lot of stolen art. And in fact, the FBI had put out a warning about three years ago mm -hmm. alerting auction houses and dealers. And it's unprecedented that they did this. And they did a call with the leading ones to warn them that there were Middle Eastern antiquities coming in that, if bought, could be financing terrorism. Right. And we have seen just this year that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has set up an art crime squad, and they are actively prosecuting cases, which have resulted in the return of antiquities from the Met Museum in New York and raids of a major hedge fund, um, their offices and home, Steinhardt, for his illicit antiquities are believed to be allegedly illicit antiquities. What's the what's the opposition point of not putting them in? What do those groups say uh, in response to this? Too burdensome to the typical stuff that businesses always say? That's or? right. Too burdensome and that it's been a, a unregulated trade and they're good at regulating themselves, so why should that change? Yeah, that always works. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know you've heard that in yeah. other fields yeah. before, yeah, too. Yeah, even in our fields. No, no, we can do it ourselves. Don't worry. <laughs> That's don't, right. Don't worry about it. So, oh, so I think from our members' perspective, what's interesting here, I, I did um, bring to this interview mm -hmm. an article that was in uh, a recent edition of ACAMS Today on this, written by some folks from the Department of Homeland Security. So there is sort, sort of a sense in at least the law enforcement space, plus you folks, of course, yeah. that this is this is out there, that the FBI had their own mm -hmm. division is obviously important, and I'll follow up at some point with them and see if they have more to say on the subject and perhaps want to write more for any organization mm -hmm. that distributes to AML. It doesn't have to be ACAMS, but um, I think awareness is, is certainly important. What I would say to folks um, as, as we get ready to close this down, I find this fascinating, both from the the sad, really scary cultural cleansing part of it that we both talked about briefly, right. but the fact that these are cultural heritage artifacts of so many uh, countries that we sort of lose that uh, understanding of where we're from. Uh, you right. know, And I think um, the sad part of it is people are benefiting the worst part is they're committing terrorist acts based on this. Right. I mean, that's even more hurtful. One thing to just be greedy and you want something on your mantle. That's right. Which is terrible, but uh, this is this is uh, worse. I do want to ask you to sort of give us some final thoughts, but what I found interesting about the conversation we had last week, uh, again, it was, as folks in, in our community know, Chatham House rules, so who said what is never would get reported. But a few individuals in that room said some things that stuck with me. And they said that, you know, if you're visiting somebody, and I guess if you're fortunate to visit somebody who's really wealthy, and, and they're pointing to something on their mantelpiece, and you look at it and you say, where did you get this? Mm -hmm. And they have either no answer or no understanding of this space. Perhaps they need to be called out a little bit, you know. Yeah. But maybe that's not, maybe that's something people need to think about. And um, I, I get that. I think that mm -hmm. that's... It's not even shaming. It's we call it reputation risk in the financial sector, culture of compliance that you want to support doing the right thing. That's right. Uh, I think the more you folks make people aware of this, I think mm -hmm. yeah, the more success you'll have. So, uh, final thoughts on what our 
community can do to work with you folks? Well, I, I would say one last thing just on, on this issue related to destruction of our heritage. It, it is our shared heritage, but it's not only that it's destroying the past, it's destroying future opportunity because many of these countries are dependent upon cultural tourism. And the fact that that has been targeted is really hitting not only economic future of these countries, but the political stability sometimes because it's right. undermining a good source of where their economic growth is coming. So there, there's a bigger reason in addition to just preservation of the past that we're involved in this and we care so deeply about this. I mean, because it really does play into national security and foreign policy issues even bigger than just the fact that in the case of the Middle East, it's been supporting terrorism. And anything that is supporting organized crime and terrorism needs to be stopped. So we see that it's very important that there be awareness of tracking that first, this is a big issue. There is a lot of illicit art and antiquities that are circulating in the market now. We're going to see this in particular over the next 10 years because it often takes a while for them to sort of be whitewashed in coming through the system to show up into our market. And based on our experiences, it can take five to 10 years. So we're only at the beginning of this. So I would encourage compliance people to work with their clients to make sure that they have really done their provenance research. Because more and more we're seeing increased activity from immigration and customs, large numbers of seizures coming in. They're becoming more effective in how they're doing this, working with groups like FedEx and UPS, because that's how a lot of this comes into our country. We're seeing the FBI being much more active and being willing to um, prosecute people under the terrorism statutes. And you don't want your client being prosecuted for that. And uh, art crime squads are going to be set up not only in New York, but we're going to start seeing a trend in major art capitals in the United States, Chicago, Los Angeles, and other places. So there's going to be increased scrutiny. So it's really important that um, those working in this field have an understanding of what this trend is and to work with their clients to make sure that they're paying very close attention to this. I, I couldn't uh, say it any better. What I will say is um, the uh, AML community could definitely use you folks out talking to them at conferences and webinars mm -hmm. and I will uh, post, um, we will post and we will mention at the end of this the uh, your website, uh, the information that you've, you've been able to produce, a little bit more about the legislation. I think at the end of the day, um, you'll find that there's many folks that um, if you make them aware of something, mm -hmm. they will get better. And, and the other part of this, as you say, to, to convict individuals under these statutes, the more awareness out there, the less they can say Oh, we were just unaware. You can't be willfully blind. That's right. You know, as 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 we all know. That's Deborah, right. thanks for the time. Really appreciate it. Good luck, and I think you'll definitely be hearing more from from the folks that listen into this, but also mm -hmm. read what you guys have put together, and also the programs that you've been able to put on. Great. Well, thanks, John. Thanks for having us. Well, I hope you found that as compelling as I did. A couple things I want to mention: the legislation that Deborah referred to is HR fifty eight eighty six. And that can be found uh, on the House.gov website. There is no corollary, as she mentioned, to a Senate bill at this point. But obviously a provision like this could get added to spending bills or some other vehicle. So I would take a look at that if you're in our community. Because as I mentioned, I think it's pretty important that everybody that has a financial footprint has some obligation 
to do due diligence. And art dealers and auction houses shouldn't be free from that obligation. For more information on the Antiquities Coalition, the website is theantiquitiescoalition.org. Some very interesting things going on um, with that organization. They've obviously partnered with some other uh, private and public sector groups and governments. And I just find the fact that uh, this is a space that there hasn't been a lot of discussion within our community about, uh, but deserves that focus. Just hearing about the fact that the database contains a million pieces of stolen artifacts really sort of jumps off the page. I think that's uh, pretty amazing. The other parts of the interview that I found intriguing is the excellent work being done by the Manhattan DA's office. Obviously, the organization, the government organization in Italy, you'll read more about that on the Antiquities Coalition website. There is an article in a previous uh, edition of ACAMS Today on uh, the theft and the cultural cleansings issues that occurs when ISIS and other organizations um, traffic in these stolen artifacts and stolen antiquities. So take a look at that um, if you have the uh, opportunity. Uh, Once more, I'm also interested in other areas of AML that you'd like me to focus on in upcoming interviews. I have a few scheduled coming up in the next couple of months. Be very interested in, uh, if you have any ideas, please reach out to me. I'm happy to uh, talk to folks, whether in person or via conference call, if it has to be done that way. So once again, I hope we've added uh, to your knowledge base in this broad-based community that continues to grow and grow and grow. This is John Byrne, Uh, for AML Right Source. Thanking you for listening, and we will talk to you next time.